Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the morning report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. I'm Dr. Raj, and I am super pumped because I get to talk about my new book. And what is the title of it? It's Medicine Morning Report, Subspecialties, and of course, Beyond the Pearls. And this is a book for medical students, for interns, for residents, you know what, even for attendings. It's case-based. It is what is the next best step? What is the treatment? What is your differential diagnosis? And you know what? I made a couple podcasts recently to be giving you sample cases of the book, and I wanted to make it kind of down to earth. So what did I do? I invited the target audience to hook up with me. So I have a bye-bye med school, meaning graduated, hello residency, almost doctor. No, she is a doctor. Her name is Dr. Eva Kondaker. And Eva, how are you doing today? Hey, Dr. Rob. It's so awesome to be back on this podcast with you. I am extremely excited again, as always, to learn from you. So thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh, well, you know what? You're going to be putting me on the spot, so I don't want to get too nice to you. Because <laughs> the way we're doing this is that I'm going to read the opening case. And once again, this is case number 55 in the book. And I definitely want you to check out the book. So I'm going to read the opening case and I'm going to throw it to Eva and she's going to grill me on some questions. How's that sound? That sounds great. And I love this. Uh, I love this. I love these cases. Specifically, this one is actually very interesting. So you guys are listening. Get your pen and paper ready because you're going to take some really great notes. Okay. So, you know what? This one kind of hits home because this is like an ICU case. And I always like talking about the intensive care unit. We have a oh, young 27-year-old man presents to the emergency department after having his first seizure. He is intubated for airway protection and transferred to the medical ICU for further care. He has no prior medical or surgical history. He takes no known medications, and his only known allergy is to shellfish. His social history is significant for a four-pack year history of smoking and drinks a little alcohol. While in the intensive care unit, he requires prolonged uh, ventilation due to agitation. And unfortunately, you know this alcohol history? Well, it turned out that it was, you know, a little more pertinent than he initially led on to, meaning his family telling us. So it took him a while to get off the ventilator because of alcohol withdrawal. It happens. So on day seven of intubation, he is noted to having increasing oxygen requirements on the ventilator. What are we going to do? I'm going to throw it to Eva. Take it away. Okay, well, Dr. Raj, um, you did mention a lot of things in this case here, and it looks like this is pretty straightforward case, but I know that you were mentioning earlier when we were talking, this is very focused. So what are some of the causes of hypoxemia to consider in patients on mechan the mechanical ventilation in the ICU? 
No, I, I agree. You know, I think that this is kind of where it does start a little bit broad because I don't want to just throw in the punchline right away. But, you know, if you're on the mechanical ventilator, it stinks, you know, especially, you know, with, you know, COVID these last couple of years. You know, trust me, I was in the ICU. When patients go on the ventilator, we're not talking for hours and days. We're talking weeks and it is horrible. And these patients are sedated. Sometimes if I can't ventilate them, they're paralyzed. It just sends chills up and down. So it's no fun being on the mechanical ventilator. And of course, you know, it's such a dynamic process. One morning that the oxygen saturations are okay. Next minute they're down. So what comes to my mind? And that's where you need to take a step back, look at the patients, look at the imaging, look at the labs, you know what I mean? And kind of piece things together. So, you know, one thing could be just aspiration. You know, we try our darndest not to let people aspirate on the vent, but it, it just happens, you know? And, you know, if you aspirate on the ventilator, you know, it may go down to that right lower low, but there's no guarantees because you're sometimes you're laying kind of flat when they're removing the patient. So you'd be surprised. You could, you know, aspirate in the, the posterior, you know, portions of the upper lobe sometimes. So of course, aspirations there, you know, maybe they develop some atelectasis that could happen sometimes. Maybe they're fluid overloaded, you know, they're technically going to be hypotensive from sepsis, from being on positive pressure on giving them fluids. So volume overload could be a big thing. Or what about this? How about a pulmonary embolism? It's not as if they're running laps around the ICU. Of course, we have them on DVT prophylaxis, but it's definitely something to consider. And of course, there could be what we call ventilator-associated pneumonias. And as much as we try, you know, to avoid this, it happens. And let me just take a step back and say that, you know, that goes under what we call nosocomial infections. And when we talk about nosocomial infections, I could talk about UTIs, intra-abdominal, or of course, the ventilator. And even though ICU beds, you know, kind of occupy only 10% of hospital beds, I got to tell you, the nastiest nosocomial infections happen in that ICU. And of course, what am I worried about beyond line infections from central lines? I do worry about these ventilator-associated pneumonias. So I look at this case, you got someone on the vent, I think it was like for almost like, you know, seven to 10 days. Unfortunately, it was that alcohol withdrawal that kept them on there. This is going to be a huge setup in the right setting for a ventilator associated pneumonia. Right on. Yeah. Uh, what is the most likely cause uh, of this right lower lobe consolidation in this patient? Well, that's the question, right? You know, you don't want to put all your eggs in the basket right away. You know what I mean? Could it be an aspiration pneumonia? Sure. Could it be a ventilator-associated pneumonia? Sure. Now, both of those could be kind of on the same track because, you know, someone's going to ask me, well, I mean, they're different names, but is it really going to change my management? Now, let me think about that. You know, when we talk about aspiration, what do you really aspirate? You aspirate what's in your mouth, you know? So exactly. Trust me, I mean, you aspirate, I aspirate. What am I aspirating right now? I'm aspirating staph and strep. It hangs out of my mouth, you know? And that's why we know when I when I hear people and residents and fellows, you know, you know, saying, oh, aspiration pneumonia, let me give some metronidazole. Let me give me some anaerobic coverage. I'm like, wait a minute, take a step back. Trust me, you don't have bacteroides in your mouth. You just don't. You know, so right. you're, you know, I don't, I think we have a little overkill when we talk about anaerobic coverage. So when you're on the ventilator, sure, you could aspirate, but what you're aspirating is what's in that hospital. And what's in the hospital, not just staph aureus, 
MRSA, not just gram-negative bugs, Pseudomonas. So is it really going to change what I choose antibiotic-wise? Probably not a lot. But of course, if they're aspirating, you want to treat the underlying cause of the aspiration, that risk factor. So definitely aspirations, ventilator-associated pneumonias. Could it be right lower lobe atelectasis? Could it be a mucus plug? You know, I think all those things are going to be in the differential. Right. And you know what, Dr. Raj, like, you know, you, you did mention a lot about obviously community associated pneumonias, hospital acquired versus ventilation um, acquired associated pneumonias. Now, with all of that said, and we understand these things, how do you really differentiate between these three? Oh, great question. So I always think about bookshelf. On one side of the bookshelf, we have community acquired pneumonia, you know, and let's talk about that for a second. So when someone has a community-acquired pneumonia, hence the word, you get it from the community. You're just walking around doing your own thing. And there are many different bugs you think about. But number one always has to be strep pneumo. And what are going to be some of the buzzwords for board exams? They might trick you and say, someone has HIV. What's the most common cause of pneumonia? It's not PCP. It's got to be strep pneumo. Someone is an alcoholic. What is the most common cause of pneumonia? It's not Klebsiella pneumonia. It's strep pneumo. Because common things are always going to be common. And when we talk about categorizing community-acquired pneumonias, there's so many ways of doing it. And for some reason, every medical student thinks it's typical and atypical. And these are very historic terms, you know, really referring to radiographic findings, such as typical meanings, consolidation of the lobe. Well, atypical means bilateral, but trust me, trust me that you could have something like Legionella and have a lobar pneumonia. So, you know, don't overly focus on typical and atypical. But for my bugs, when I think of a classic typical pneumonia, strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, moxarella cataralis, atypicals, everyone's going to say mycoplasma, Legionella. And those are correct answers. Now, on the extreme other end of things, you have HAP and VAP. So HAP is hospital-associated pneumonias, and VAP is ventilator-associated pneumonias, both assuming bacterial. Now, in the middle, in the olden, olden, super olden days, there was this terminology called healthcare-associated pneumonias. We do not, and let me repeat, not use that term anymore. So you're going to ask me why, and I'm going to tell you, is because of the fact that, you know, when you talk about HAP and VAP, hospital and ventilator-associated pneumonias, well, you got to think of the same nasty, nasty bugs. What is the nastiest gram-positive? What's the nastiest gram-negative? And the answer is MRSA, Staph aureus for gram-positive. And of course, my favorite gram-negative rod, which is going to be Pseudomonas. Now, when we had healthcare-associated pneumonias, people in nursing homes, people in dialysis units, we realized through studies that we were really giving over-broad-spectrum antibiotics because we just said they all have pseudomonas and MRSA, which they didn't. And that was really causing a problem with antibiotic resistance. So because of that, we don't use that terminology anymore. And when we talk about HAP and VAP, I'm going to predict there's going to be a question that you're going to ask me about how to diagnose it coming up. So I'll just kind of ease <laughs> up on that. Yeah, no worries. I mean, I, that, that was a very good explanation between how to, how to differentiate between these three. Um, so that brings me to my next question, which is this patient that we're talking about exactly, what type of pneumonia does this patient have? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of knew it. I felt that we had a little mind <laughs> thing going on together, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. You know, so by the definition of what a VAP is, now this patient's on the ventilator. You know what I mean? If the patient wasn't on the ventilator, it definitely would be a hospital associated pneumonia. The patient's been in the hospital greater than 48 hours and develop signs and symptoms consistent with a uh, pneumonia. But this patient's on the vent and definitely on the vent for greater than 48 hours. So definitely is a setup for a VAP, you know. But the question becomes, I mean, how do you diagnose it? And it is the darndest, hardest thing in the whole world. Why? It's because, you know, when you asked me the opening question, what is the causes of hypoxia in a ventilated patient? Well, it's the same differential because if you show me that chest x-ray, well, it doesn't guarantee it's a bacterial pneumonia. Could it be atelectasis? Could it be some volume overload? Could it be an infarct from a pulmonary embolism like a Hampton's hump? So the answer is, is that you have to rule out all these other things. You have to have increasing oxygen requirements, fevers. You know what I mean? Of course, you want to get, try to get some sample and grow a bug, but it's not the easiest one-dimensional thing in the whole world. And we have so many labs that we try to order. And the big one that we talk about in the chapter is something called a procalcitonin. So mm-hmm. procalcitonin, for those who are super pumped that I said that, is mm-hmm. going to be a marker that we use for bacterial, bacterial, bacterial pneumonias, whether it be community-acquired or in this case, hospital or ventilator-associated. Now, you know, when you talk about all these labs that we have nowadays in medicine, you know, I'm just throwing out some random ones, D-dimer, brain naturatic peptide, procalcitonin, you know. For me, my answer is always going to be, these are super helpful when they're negative, but they're really not helpful when they're positive. All these labs have a good negative predictive value. Reason why they don't really help when they're positive, because so many things could crank up these labs. You know what I mean? And that's why you have to take the history, physical, you got to get your pretest probability and put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But in this case, it really looks like we're going the way of ventilator-associated ammonia because the patient's intubated. It definitely happened more than 48 hours. And it's something you don't want to miss. You could get really sick, septic, and die from a poorly treated ventilator-associated pneumonia. Okay. And, you know, you had mentioned that procalcitonin. Now, I just want to clarify, you don't use procalcitonin to diagnose, correct? It's more for treatment? No, actually, it's backwards. So we actually use it for treatment in the sense, for diagnosis in the sense that the lab by itself means nothing. And that's why I wanted to reemphasize that, that right. sure, you just order a lab, you don't show me the patient, you don't show me what's going on. I don't know what to make of the lab. So you always have to take your pretest probability and use it with the whole picture. And we order the procalcitonin because there are a lot of things that can mimic pneumonia that are not pneumonia. And we have to be very specific. This is only, only, only for bacterial pneumonias, not viral, not fungus, bacterial pneumonias. Now, if you repeat the procalcitonin, are you going to go to jail? No. No. <laughs> I, mean, is it, I mean, is someone, do some doctors order certain inflammatory markers to see resolution? I'm sure they do. They're not bad people. You I mean, I could give an example. Certain doctors like ordering C-reactive proteins as pneumonias get better. But mm-hmm. procalcitonin wasn't really meant to be a lab that we monitor as you're treating the patient. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Thanks for that. Yeah. So now that you figure out, okay, so this is, uh, you know, ventilation associated versus community acquired, whatever, what do you do next? How do you go to treat these uh, bacterial infections? 
Sure. And, you know, I'm going to have to take a step back because, you know, some of my favorite people in the hospital are the pharmacist, you know, and we do something called antibiotic stewardship. And I can't believe I'm talking about this in my pocket. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, resistance is such a huge thing right now. And when I talk about resistance, I'm talking these nasty, nasty bugs. I'm going to throw out some letters, ESBL, extended spectrum beta lactamases, CRE, carbipenem-resistant enterobaceae, mean, of course, MRSA. So with all these things put together, it's very important when we talk about ICU patients or any patient, but I'm only focusing a lot on septic ICU patients is starting broad. Make sure you cover the bugs, the bacteria that you suspect. But once again, narrow the spectrum. You got to narrow that spectrum based on cultures and sensitivities. And one good way to make sure that we cover the appropriate bugs and narrow the spectrum is called antibiotic stewardship. And that's where we have a multidisciplinary team that involves doctors and pharmacists and everyone put together. And we reevaluate cases. And why is this going to be so important? It's because there are so many niche antibiotics now. It's so hard to even list all the different types. And, you know, uh, these antibiotics could really, if you use them in the, in the wrong patient or give them uh, for the wrong duration of time or don't de-escalate, you really can get some nasty, nasty resistance. So the important thing before treating anyone is, did you make the right diagnosis and are covering the right bugs? And that's why when we talk about what should we do first? is we have to culture these patients, try to get a culture. And of course, what is the rule in the perfect world? You want to culture before you start any antibiotics in a perfect world. So since we're talking about the lung, how do we get that culture? Well, that's really the, the, the spicy topic. Everyone wants me to take a bronchoscope, which is a fiber optic tube, and put it down the, in the tercho tube and go in there and bronch. But the Infectious Disease Society says that you don't really need to be that aggressive. And that's someone's opinion. And I agree. You don't have to put a bronchoscope in everyone. They recommended that you could do kind of one of these, you know, a blinded mini alveolar lavage where you take the suction catheter, throw it down the tube and just get some, you know, some samples back. And that's fine. And that's reasonable. You know, when I do a bronchoscopy, I'm not saying you have to do it on everyone, but it's more than just getting samples. I do it because... I could look at the mucosa. If there's going to be, you know, thick, tenacious sputum in the airways, I could clean the patient out. So I think the take-home message for today's conversation is you definitely want to get cultures. How do you get that culture? Well, I think doing minimally invasive things first, like what we call mini BAL, just, you know, throwing the suction catheter from the endotracheal tube down and suction back. Sometimes you could do a bronchoalveolar lavage by doing a bronchoscopy. Get some blood cultures. Maybe the patient's bacteremic, but that's going to be poor prognosis. But get those cultures first. Right. Okay. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the bugs because that's really my favorite topic. Let's talk about some of the most common organisms that causes these CAP, PAP, and BAP. Because I know, like, talking about pharmacology, all the treatments and all the drugs that you'd be used to treat these organisms is so vast. Let's let's maybe go back a step and talk about some of these organisms that, you know, causes all these devastating issues. Sure. You know, and I would say this much, you know, I want it to be focused on the case itself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, you know, VAP and, you know, and not to like now, well, it's not, I think it's time to give away the punchline. This patient had right. VAP, you know what I mean? Right. Ventilator associated bacterial pneumonia. So of course, you know, this goes back to my previous answer, which is, well, 
what do we suspect? What's going to do all the damage? You know, on the gram positive side, it's going to be when we talk about, you know, MRSA. And on the gram negative side, the number one bug you worry about is going to be Pseudomonas. You know, other gram negatives that you worry about are going to be Klebsiella and even E. coli sometimes. But of course, when we talk about the lung itself, it's going to be Pseudomonas. So this is really going to parlay into antibiotics. And I think that's the take home message. So how do I choose my antibiotics? It's based upon my biogram. And so every hospital has their antimicrobial biogram, meaning that depending on your ICU, what type of ICU, is it going to be a neurosurgical ICU? Is it going to be a transplant ICU? We all have different patient populations. Is it a community type hospital? All these things factor in and we have our sensitivities to what we call our workhorses. So every hospital, every ICU has their workhorses that we use if we suspect VAP. So for example, for, you know, MRSA, you definitely think about vancomycin, you know, and when we talk about, you know, pseudomonas, it's probably going to be one of two things, cefepime, which is a fourth generation cephalosporin, or you may use pepercillin tazobactam, which is an extended spectrum penicillin with a beta-lactamase inhibitor, which is the tazobactam. So which ones do we use? It's based upon our uh, antimicrobial biogram to say, for my, you know, pseudomonas, for my cefepime, it works in 85% of the isolates that we get that are pseudomonas. That's great. That means that if you give cefepime, you suspect pseudomonas, 85% of the patients are going to be treated appropriately. Only 15%, and I hate using the word only, won't be appropriately covered. But if your brygram shows that your sensitivities for cefepime is down in the 60s, well, that means if you give cefepime that you have a 40% chance of guessing wrong. And that's a big number. So we use this based on what we've cultured and grow in each individual ICU to make our decision making. So I would say just using broad things to cover for this topic, I would say for MRSA, vancomycin first, for my students listening today, what do we worry about? Always worry about renal toxicity. Always worry about ototoxicity. Yes, someone is already mentioning Redman syndrome, which is not really a toxicity. I don't really see it too much. But if, let's say, they're resistant to vancomycin, what should be the next line drug you would think about? Linezolid. Now, linezolid comes both in oral and IV formulation. Uh, be careful when you give linezolid with SSRIs because it can cause a serotonin syndrome. And let me just say this, someone is already mumbling the word daptomycin, and we do not use daptomycin for the lung. So it's very important when you use antibiotics that you know what they got the FDA approval for, for what organ. Daptomycin gets inactivated by the surfactant in the alveoli. So daptomycin, great for bacteremia and other things, but just not the lung. When we talk about gram negatives, focusing on pseudomonas, you know, the two most common workhorses are going to be cefepime, which is the fourth generation cephalosporin, has no anaerobic coverage, or the pepercillin tazobactam brand name Zosin. And, you know, that one is going to give you some anaerobic coverage there. Now, the thing that we worry about the most is that, you know, if the pseudomonas actually has a mutation uh, called an AMP-C mutation, which is transferred from, you know, bacteria to bacteria through what's called plasmids. And an AMP-C mutation is almost like having, you know, a beta-lactamase where it's actually going to cause really horrible resistance in these bugs. And that's where you have to use, you know, other medications that may cover someone who has resistant pseudomonas. 
And, you know, one of the things that I'll just mention, there are, there are many, many uh, drugs out there, but we're really combining cephalosporins with very high generation beta-lactamase inhibitors and high generation beta-lactamase inhibitors with classic cephalosporins. For example, there are medications such as ceftolazine. Someone's like, what is a ceftolazine? It's kind of like a fifth generation cephalosporin combined with tazobactam, brand name Zerbaxa, that really does a number on pseudomonas. There is a third generation cephalosporin called ceftazidine that's combined with a very high generation beta-lactamase inhibitor called avibactam, called Avacaz. And there is so many new medications out there. So it's important to have a multidisciplinary talk, cover the bugs you suspect, and narrow the spectrum based upon your culture and sensitivities. Wow, that was that was a really great explanation, Dr. Raj. Um, again, I'm just I feel like you go above and beyond in your amazing explanation. So thank you for that. Now, are there any data on inhaled antibiotics on ventilated patients? Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that's a great question. We try to put a little something in there in the chapter about it. And the answer is no. When I brought that up, because in our patients that have bronchiectasis, which we talked about, check out the podcast, uh, and cystic fibrosis, you know, some of these individuals may be colonized with pseudomonas. And one of the things that we use in patients who are colonized with pseudomonas as prophylaxis, not treatment, is things like inhaled tobramycin. So there's definitely a role for these antibiotics in the prophylactic setting. But as for treatment for a HAPVAP, I'm, I'm sure many pharmaceutical companies are thinking about it. But as of right now, when this podcast is getting released, the answer is no. Okay, wow. Well, I guess my last question is, what is the role of repeated imaging in monitoring resolution of pneumonia? That is a great question, you know, and whether it's going to be a community-acquired pneumonia or a HAPVAP, the answer is there's no set guidelines. And, you know, I think that's where we talk about shared decision-making. And in fact, sometimes repeating the imaging could make things rather confusing. So what do I mean by that? There's always going to be delay in the resolution of the imaging. So let's say patient's getting better, they're on the ventilator, and they're you know, it's day three and no, what the heck? Let me get another chest x-ray. I get the chest x-ray and it looks worse, but the patient's doing better. Now it's like, what? So, you know, I think the answer is sometimes we do want to look for resolution at some point. And I'm not saying it's wrong to, especially if something, you know, is kind of suspicious. You're like, well, it could be a pneumonia. I don't know because there are mimickers, you know what I mean? So there may be a role. But I think you take it case by case, and there's no set guideline that demands that you need to have a repeat imaging. Thank you for that. Yeah. Honestly, Dr. Raj, um, it's always great going over these cases with you because I feel like there's just so much additional information that normally you don't read about or you don't come across. And obviously, it's so clearly well written in your book. So those of you that are listening, do pick up this book. Um, you guys will learn a lot. And if these podcasts have helped you just from listening to us, trust me, the book is even enhanced with so much more information. Well, you know what, Eva, I got to say my compliments to you. I don't know what <laughs> order these podcasts are coming out in, but you know, I totally enjoyed hanging out with you. And I just know you're going to be super successful as an amazing doctor and I hope I influenced you enough to go into pulmonary critical <laughs> care. Oh my gosh, Dr. Raj. You know, I, you're, you really made me love pulmonary. 
um, and critical care. So I hope so, you know, and thank you so much for, for taking the time to teach us all. You're such an amazing mentor and it's always a pleasure learning from you. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Eva. And enjoy more of the Beyond the Pearls podcast. And of course, I got to say it, get the book. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.